0: In the words of Tom Schrader, let's do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is it. So next week we start 2 Corinthians, if we don't start it tonight. The week after is an evening with Marcus Doe. I would really encourage you all to be here for that, but it'll start earlier. I think it starts at 6 and we're having dinner and stuff together. Or maybe 6.30, I can't remember. But we're having dinner together first. And there's child care. And then we'll get back into 2 Corinthians. But then in October, we are going to have a membership class for two or three Wednesday nights. We're going to interrupt 2 Corinthians and do a membership class. So just kind of giving you an idea of what's coming up. So we are in the last chapter. Let's start with the first paragraph, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection of the saints, or for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, (coughs) so you also are to do. I like the way Paul says that. I'm not just telling you what to do, I've told other people what to do. Because the Corinthians obviously have a problem with being told what to do. So he's trying to soften the blow, I think. I told them too, you know. Uh, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should uh, go also, they will accompany me. So what's going on here? Here's what's happening. The church in Jerusalem at this time was in the midst of a a severe economic downturn due to a famine. (coughs) And this famine is recorded in several different historical places. And the church, the mother, what you might call the mother church in Jerusalem, was suffering tremendously. And so Paul was arranging a collection among all the churches in the northern Mediterranean area so that he could take the money back to Jerusalem and help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, there, there's more issues here than just... A collection that we have to try to understand uh, this would be a big deal to Jerusalem not just for the financial relief but we need to understand that this would be a Gentile church helping a Jewish church they're all Christians but it would be a Gentile church helping a Jewish congregation that would be a huge deal so you can see that what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that the the gospel of Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostilities between Jews and Gentiles and have made them into one man. And so we see that actually playing out here. And that would be true of all of the churches in the northern Mediterranean area. They're all primarily Gentile uh, churches that are now giving to a Jewish church. But also, in the midst of this, Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians about Uh, systematic, disciplined giving. Two different, giving through a sort of a system and giving in a disciplined way. And primarily for two reasons. Number one, if giving is not disciplined and systematic, more often than not, we just forget. (laughs) We We just forget to do it and that's true Uh, I have a simple system that's sort of old fashioned now it used to be the way everybody would do it sort of in a systematic way and that's on the 15th and the 30th of every month I write my check to the church because that's when I get paid is on the 15th and the 30th but also it's now so much easier to set up automatic withdrawal You, you only have to be disciplined once you just set it up you know with your uh, bank and then it comes out in an automatic way now i'm old school i like the process the thought it takes the worship the act of worship you know there's all that piety associated with that but i do like that of actually writing the check and thinking about it and praying about it and then dropping it in the box so i like that but i can also tell you online giving has been a tremendous help to most churches it really has because um it is something that people take care of and then they just sort of forget about it and, and it keeps going and they don't have to worry about it. Uh, it. By the way, it does cost the church something. We get charged a small fee for every one of those online gifts, but uh, it's, it's actually helped churches a lot in the long run. But there is this idea that if, you don't, if you're not disciplined, if you don't have a system in place, you'll probably forget to do it. I, I struggle when I'm out of town to remember to do it. That's a great example. Okay. But second of all, when Paul visits them, he doesn't want to have to waste any time sort of backtracking and say, you know, okay, where's where's your gift for Jerusalem? Oh, we haven't done it yet. Oh, okay, well, we need to gather everybody now and and get them to give now. He says, I'd really it would really help if you just had it ready for me to take. Um and, of course, when we look at 2 Corinthians, we'll find out that that didn't go so well either. There were some problems with Paul showing up when he was supposed to. The Corinthians really weren't prepared. 2 uh, Corinthians is an interesting book when we get into it. Uh, part of the, Some people think that 2 Corinthians is actually two different letters. That the chapters 1 through 8 is one letter and chapters 9 through 13 is a whole other letter. But as a whole, if you just take it chapters 1 through 13, you have... You have Paul for the first eight chapters just pouring out his heart, thanking the Corinthians for responding so well to his previous letters. And everything is hunky-dory now. They've disciplined the sinner and and they're listening to Paul. And then he he gets a report back from somebody who says, you know what, they don't think very much of you (laughs) in Corinth. And so then he just starts in with chapter 9 and it's like, wow, the tone of this letter really changed. Like, like, I mean, a uh, uh, hundred and eighty degree turnaround in this letter. Um, and at one point, we're going to find that Paul will laud and exalt the less resourced churches for their giving over and opposed to the rich Corinthians. So he makes the point that the Corinthians are actually richer than all the other churches. in in the Asian area the northern Mediterranean area yet they're giving sacrificially and you can't even give out of your surplus uh, he argues and then there's one more important item Um, uh, notice that Paul puts into place accountability for the money collected he says I want to get accredited letters for the people who are going to take the offering Okay, I, I argue that that's a really good idea and I know that some people would say, but wait a minute, <clears throat> these are Christian people. Why do you have to worry about somebody stealing the money? <laughs> okay. I was actually in a church <laughs> where the people who were doing the deposit every, every Monday morning, one of them we found stealing from the offering. This is back before internet giving when all the money was in the boxes and stuff. And so you, you have to have this system of checks and balances. Even here... Um, you see me collecting uh, generally or Stephanie collecting after the service but there's always two people who are actually doing the deposit even though practically nothing is given in person anymore at Arcadia by the way of the 10 this might be interesting to you it may not be of the 10 congregations in Redemption Church Redemption Arcadia has the highest percentage of their giving done through the internet of all the congregations we get little fun little reports like that Occasionally. So anyway, yeah, you need accountability even in a Christian context. Okay, so moving on, verses five through 11. Paul writes, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I tend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So Paul is again acting as though things are pretty hunky-dory with the Corinthians right now. He eventually gets this report back from Timothy and it's not good. But these verses also might help us, help remind us, these uh, seven verses might help remind us that uh, people were not very effective in the art of hurry in the first century. We're all in a big hurry. Have you ever noticed that? By the way, I've read John Mark Comer's book, um, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Really wonderful content, but... uh, the tone of the book sometimes aggravated me, but it was really good content, and I and I appreciated it. It was very helpful. Uh, but, you know, in the first century, hurry wasn't a big problem, you know. Um, Paul needed to get this offering to Jerusalem, but he's in Ephesus at least through the early summer, and then plans to spend the winter in Corinth after getting there, and he's saying, if you want me to go with the guys who take the money, you know, I mean, it might be a year before Jerusalem sees any of this money. And there doesn't seem to be any sense of urgency about that, you know. So they're just used to things taking a long time. So, and, and you know, you've got to remember, uh, we, we can get places so quickly now. But they had no trains, no planes, no automobiles. So Steve Martin and John Candy were nowhere to be found. Uh, there were no wire transfers. There wasn't even a Pony Express. They haven't even figured that out yet, you know. But also, I'm not so sure I would want the Apostle Paul to say, hey, when I come to you, I do not want to just pass through. I want to spend some time with you. I, you know, I, I don't know how it is for you all in the marketplace and stuff, but I just remember being in retail and restaurant management, and the boss would come in, and it's like, Okay, everything's fine. Go to the next door. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's okay, go on. You, know, you don't have to stick around for a while and see what really goes on here. <laughs> you know? So I'm not sure I'd want him to do that. You know, um, I love Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor, but I really like the fact that we're sort of not on his radar. <laughs> People are always like, how come Tyler never comes and visits? By the way, he was here when I was gone in Iowa he did come it was like first time in a couple of years he came but how come Tyler Johnson never comes here I'm going I don't know but it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you (laughs) apparently you know so um, finally you see that Paul's schedule is influenced by opportunity and need and not by convenience that's really hard for us today and I'm just telling you that's hard for me that's really hard uh, for me Um, And it's pretty cool that he sees a lot of opportunity, even in the midst of challenges in Ephesus. He says, look, there's a ton of adversaries here, and I see that as an opportunity. That's pretty amazing as well. So he's going to send his man, Timothy, and he says, you better treat him well. And again, we have to remember the culture in Corinth was one that was, if they didn't like this person, they didn't like this other person if he was related in any way to this person or representing this person in any way. So, Paul was worried about the fact that if he sent Timothy there, he would be representing Paul. He was a friend of Paul's, he was Paul's protege, that the Corinthians might treat him badly because he's associated with Paul. So, he's trying to uh, mitigate against that. And he's also trying to. Uh, sort of mitigate their feelings of dismissal that Paul is not going to come any sooner Paul's trying to explain I am doing ministry here it's fruitful so I'm going to stick around here for a little while longer by the way this does apparently when we start reading 2nd Corinthians this does sort of tick off the, the, the Corinthians a bit and then verse 12 now concerning our brother Apollos I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers but it was not at all in his will to come now he will come when he has an opportunity so one of the things that the corinthians had written about was when apollos would return to the church in corinth if you remember there were these factions in corinth that paul talked about in chapter three you know some follow apollos some follow peter some follow me, whatever it is. Some Paulists say they follow Jesus or whatever they're these factions. He's saying these factions are a problem. But the factions especially were were specifically for the most part over and against Paul. And so there's some speculation by the scholars that that, um, Apollos was just trying to mitigate further against these factions by not going. Now it says it was not at all his will that he go at this time. So the big question is, is he referring to God's will or is he referring to Apollos's will? So we're not 100% sure about that. I mean, the safe answer is to say it wasn't in God's will, but it might have been just Apollos saying, look, I don't think this is a good idea um, for me to go there because these factions are not good. And if I go, it might just stir all of that up again. So Maybe the church in Corinth will get the message if Apollos doesn't go. So factions are not good in churches. They really aren't. But it's our tendency as human beings um, to kind of behave in a uh, we-they sort of attitude. It's just, it's just something that we do. We don't even realize that we're, that, that we're doing it. But we do. We tend to have this, we have this idea that there are these groups, these cliques, whatever. Um, I was at uh, training day a couple Fridays ago at GCU for the College of Theology instructors, full-time and part-time. And we were in a a session, and it was a smaller group of of maybe about 20 instructors. And they, they were trying to ask the instructors, what are some of the biggest challenges you find in your classrooms? In the College of Theology, So these are Christian studies majors, okay? What are the biggest challenges that you find in your classroom? And I was a little surprised, and then I started thinking about the classes I've had there, and I'm thinking, "Eh, maybe I have seen that too, but the number of uh, instructors who said, it's amazing how many clicks there are in the classroom based on their view of the Bible, their theology, (laughs) and, and how difficult it is for them. To, to get along with each other and have these conversations. I, I didn't experience it that much last spring, but it was interesting because this, this fall, uh, yesterday was um, my first class at GCU for the semester, 25 in the class, and I had somebody walk up after the class and say, I need to talk to you. I have a theological view, blah, 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 which by the way happens to match ours at Redemption, so it was an easy conversation for me to have with this person, but she said, um, I really struggle in, in some of the classes here to be able to express uh, my view, and even sometimes struggle with the assignments based on my theology. And I was like, okay, so I'm beginning to see how some of this, some of these theological underpinnings can can turn us into sort of a we versus they issue. Um, I tend to used to be. It's important to me, but. But the fellowship is also important, so I, I, I try to mitigate against that. Um, I have experienced in the last 10 years more people breaking fellowship with me over doctrine than me bre- breaking fellowship with, with others. And, and um, I, I just I would like Christ to be the center of our relationship, and then we have civil, rational discussions about the rest of it where we sharpen each other, hopefully. But so many of the times, it's just... And by the way, we get that at the Connect Desk sometimes. You know what the number one issue is at the Connect Desk? It might surprise you. Um, Baptism with new people. I know, in the the membership classes, it's not baptism. In the membership classes, it's election, um, marriage and divorce, and church discipline. So when we do the membership classes, it's like we just kind of fly over the other stuff, and then we always stop on those three because we know that's where the questions are going to be. But for some reason at the Connect desk, they want to know about mode of baptism and, and do we do pato baptism you know? And and it's amazing how often, you know, uh, Andrea or one of the pastors will say, they'll answer the question and the people will just turn around and walk out and that's the last time we ever seen them, you know? No discussion, nothing, you know? Anyway, so... At least nobody's asked us who we're going to vote for lately. That's been fun. So <clears throat> Anyway, um verses 13 and 14. This is what you might call final exhortations. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Can we say that? What does that mean? What? What does it say? It says, uh, listen still, or stand tall and be courageous and be strong. Let love for the the love." There's no act like men. Okay. Well, it says act like men in the Greek. <laughs> yeah. So, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. So, let's take each of these. Be watchful. Literally, be watchful in the Greek means... Guard your minds and hearts against what is false. Guard your mind and hearts against what is false. Um, I I don't want to be that person that's looking for false teaching under every chair, under every rock, behind every door. But I got to tell you, there's false teaching pretty much under every chair, behind every door, under every rock. And you got to be on the lookout for it. And it just seeps in. Uh, And the exhortation, of course, to be watchful, be on your guard, is as relevant today, if not more, than it was then. The amount of deceptions and lies and false teaching, both in the church and in the world, is quite staggering. Satan is working harder at this, it feels like, than he ever has before. And here's the thing that we really got to grab hold on, is he's better at it than we are. He's better at it than we are. And Paul writes about that. and He says, that's why you have to stand firm in the faith. That's your only hope. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Have the mind of Christ. Rely on the power of the resurrected Christ. And it's also clear that the Corinthians in their day have fallen easily to both false teaching in the church and to cultural foolishness outside of the church. And they keep trying to bring uh, the culture into the church. And again, I see that all the time here as well. It's not... It's not that we can't be like the world, but when we value that over what we're doing here in terms of our mission and vision and purpose and what's biblical, that's when it becomes a huge problem. And then he says, stand firm in the faith. Notice he does not say, learn all the falsehoods out there so that you can identify them when you see them. He doesn't say that, you know, Frank, when are we going to have a class on, just for instance, I'm I'm not saying, just bear with Frank, when are we going to have a class on Mormonism? So we can spot it. When are we going to have a class on this? When are we going to have a class on that? Well, we're going to teach the Bible because if you know the Bible, you're going to be able to spot false teaching really easy. Okay. Now I have asked banker after banker after banker about this to see if it's true I have not run into a banker yet who says this isn't true. But what bankers do is they teach you how to identify the real thing, money. Because they say if you can identify the real thing, you'll have no trouble identifying counterfeits. It's the same idea. So read your Bible. Now, uh, I like John Krukauer as an author. He's written some great books. He wrote Under the Banner of Heaven. Is anybody familiar with that book? Netflix apparently has, a, has a, a, a documentary on it now as well. I just heard this the other day, and so now of course I'm gonna go home and search Netflix for it, but it's uh, John Krakauer wrote A History of the Mormon Church, and it's, um, it, was a, it was a really interesting book, and it lined up with everything I learned in history um, about it from my church history professor as well, about the split, the, the split in, in the American church when that happened. Um, uh, but again, it's it's understanding what you believe to the extent that you can you can you can identify any of that false teaching, and sometimes it even is just sort of a spiritual spidey sense, you know. Um, I, I call it pastoral intuition. It's just there's just an intuition sometimes that you can have in certain uh, situations. So. He says, know the faith and then stand firm in it. And then standing firm, or it's an older word, but I love the word, steadfastness. It's one of the most important exhortations that followers of Jesus are are given in the Bible. Steadfastness. So James writes in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, Consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know the testing of your faith, there's the gospel component, produces In the ESV, it says perseverance, but that word translated perseverance, hoopamene, 50 years ago, it was always translated steadfastness. It can also be translated as endurance or um, patience. It can even be translated as patience. But 50 years ago, it was always translated as steadfastness, but the word steadfast sort of has fallen out of favor, and so now we say perseverance. But steadfast means that you are standing firm, you're, you, 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 you are immovable, is what it means. You're immovable from your faith. And that does take perseverance and patience, but the idea of standing firm, steadfast, not being moved by all these winds and currents of culture and false teaching. Now, the exhortation to be steadfast is not exciting or sexy, but it will certainly keep us out of trouble it will only the naive think nothing really bad will happen if I just go down this road a little bit <laughs> so Tom used to talk about how um, he'd say sin is like a beautiful flower it just, just is beautiful you know you're, you're looking at it from afar and it's just kind of drawing you close it's so beautiful I want to get a little closer Get a little closer now. I just, I just want to smell it, and you start smelling around the edges. And the next thing you know, the flower just grabs you and pulls you in. That's that's what it's like. But then sin also works the other way. If um, you know, department stores are going away. Has anybody noticed that? Physical department stores. You know. Anyway, there's still Macy's over at the Biltmore, and of course. In order to get to Zinberger where we park, we have to walk through Macy's, which we don't mind doing. But I've noticed that when you walk through Macy's, you can be nowhere near the perfume counter, but you can smell the perfume all the way. So that's what sin is. It's like, you know, oh, I'm just going to sin, you know, like that right here. But then you can't contain it. Those sin molecules just start going everywhere. Just ask David in the latter half of his reign how these sin molecules go everywhere, you know? So, David's on my mind a lot lately. And then he says, act like men. I mean, how offensive, how prejudicial. Anyway, I I would argue uh, one of the big reasons we have so many problems is because men have quit being men. They've quit behaving like men. And by the way, I'm not talking about the toxic, over-testosterone kind of man- but a man who knows what's right, does what's right, because it's right, even if he's gonna face um, unpleasantness because of it. That's the kind of man I'm talking about. And I'm just disappointed and stunned uh, at how the challenge of acting like men, this, this exhortation here scares even biblical scholars I had a hard time, you know, I was reading it in the Greek and I was able to see it in the Greek, but I had a hard time finding commentators willing to say anything about it. And, and of course, I, we had a, this last week, uh, somebody sent around an, an essay by uh, Walter Brueggemann. I don't know if you've ever heard of Walter Brueggemann. Anybody? So he's, he's a, you know, highly regarded as one of the most tremendous Old Testament scholars to ever live. And I remember when I was at Fuller years and years ago, in mean, every Old Testament class you took, you had a Brueggemann book, and everybody talked about him in these exalting um, tones and everything. And I would read him, and there was some good stuff in there. But there, I always felt like there was something not quite right, maybe. I don't know. So that spiritual spidey sense, I guess. I don't know. But he, he just wrote a long essay um, that just completely gave up on... Uh, um, biblical sexuality, and essentially said anything goes, anything goes. And of course, he's in his 80s now, and it's like, so I texted Tyler Thompson, and I said, I wonder if when I get old and irrelevant, if I'm going to give up on biblical sexuality like everybody else is doing? Because it's like there, it's like these scholars hit their 80s, and the next thing you know, they're going whatever, <laughs> you know, they don't care. And anyway, it's just it's been a pattern. So I text him that. I said, I wonder when I get old and irrelevant if that's going to happen to me. And he said, well, it hasn't happened yet, <laughs> insinuating that I'm old and irrelevant. Anyway, but it's sad that they that this has become so problematic, and yet you can look at history and you can see in every society that's done well and then has fallen, when men begin to be marginalized, that's when chaos ensues and... and culture deteriorates, okay? And again, when I say men being marginalized, I'm talking about biblical men, not, not like, you know, we're going to take this hill kind of men, but rather we're going to do what's right and we're going to protect our families kind of men, okay? By the way, I will say this about testosterone. Uh, our culture is essentially and has been for several years now calling for a world where we De-testron- detestosteronize men. We don't want men to have testosterone. Testosterone is the big problem with men. Got to get rid of testosterone. That's what our culture is saying. It's, it's the biological version of defund the police, okay? So detestosterone men, okay? The last thing we need or want is a world where men don't have te- de- uh, testosterone. That, that's not what you want. The testosterone is a really important hormone for energy, for positive outlook on life, for the ability to get up in the morning and do what you're supposed to do. Now I understand if I understand that uh, you know if you're taking testosterone supplements so you can pump yourself up, that Arnold Schwarzenegger that's really old reference. Anyway, if you're doing it for that, that's a problem and it's going to screw you up. I get that. But God has made us so that we have testosterone and the body replenishes testosterone for a reason. We need it. It's the same with women and oxytocin. Not oxycontin. Oxytocin. Okay. It's the same thing with women. You don't want women without oxytocin. It's the, the, the hormone acts kind of the same way. Yeah, it gives you a pretty decent attitude and outlook. It's, it's kind of called the, the joy hor- hormone and all that. It's the same thing. Hormones are actually pretty important, okay? So don't buy into any of that stuff as well. Um, And then he says, be strong. I think this speaks for itself in the context of these other exhortations, but it also speaks for itself in the context of the Corinthians. (laughs) Because the Corinthians are weak. They're going to church, but they're also going to the temples, and they don't see any problem with that. They're still going to the temple and offering food sacrifices and And worshiping with temple prostitutes and all of that. And Paul's saying that's a problem. And that's a sign of weakness as well. And then he says, uh, Let all that you do be done in love. Again, look at the context. The men in Corinth, and often men in general, have had a very difficult time loving properly. And the love there is agape love. Several other loves it could be, but it would have been interesting if Paul had said, um, do everything with eros now that would have been a problem that would have been like go to the temples okay no this is agape love very specifically unconditional compassionate selfless other oriented love a love that is rooted not in the worthiness of the one being loved but in the character of the one doing the loving and the only reason you could do that is because that's how christ has loved us very very important to understand And you think back to what he wrote to the church in Colossae. You know, above all, put on love. Strain all of this stuff through this agape love. And then 15 through 18. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to each to such as these And to every fellow worker and laborer, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaicus, Archaicus, Archaicus. These are worse than Old Testament names. Wow. Because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So as God refreshes us through each other, we are to also refresh one another. Believers need to refresh each other. And as we submit ourselves to God, we also must submit ourselves to one another. That's important as well. And of course, the Corinthians have a problem with submission, so Paul's hammering away again on this. By the way, let me just say this about um, community. Um, I'll be the first to admit that, (laughs) um, especially with the way my schedule is and The number of people I meet with which is my privilege but by the time by the end of the day I'm kind of worn out Um, and and uh, maybe we've scheduled to go to RC or or be a part of a group or do something like that with other people and I I will admit to you that at the end of the day I'm like why did we put this on the calendar and then I go and then on the way home I say the same thing to Jackie every time I'm really glad we went that was worth it. I feel refreshed. You know? So that's important. But the Corinthians really struggled here, and yet, if you read all of Paul's letters, you know that, that these things are a big deal to Paul, the one and others. And he's constantly admonishing God's people into these areas of life, loving each other, supporting each other, encouraging one another, serving one another, And there are a couple things happening here. Um, In a sense, this is actually a nod back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about legitimate spiritual gifts and the exercise and submission we must have to those gifts. These people are gifted, so honor them and allow them to exercise their their gifts and be glad that they're serving you in that way. So Stephanus and Fortunatus, they have these special gifts. Allow them to manifest these gifts now it doesn't mean you have to have the gifts that they have we've talked about this before Uh, occasionally you run into the person that is gifted in a particular way and wants their church to only have that gift and everybody subsume into that gift so maybe they have the gift of being an elbow to use paul's metaphor in in first corinthians 12 and they want the entire church to be an elbow well that'd be kind of a boring church we're a body. But then second of all, more than that, they are elders in the church. and so Paul recognizes them as elders. they are leaders because they have wisdom. and and these are those on whose backs the church was built. So we need to honor them. He says, honor these guys. And then finally, the final greetings of this letter, nineteen through twenty four. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, or Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So Aquila and Priscilla or Prisia, they're a big deal in early church history. We should acknowledge that. And it's fun to kind of study them as well and the importance they are to Paul. But how about verse 22? You, You talk about the closing greetings in Paul's letters. This is kind of a rarity in his closing greetings. He writes to them, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. (laughs) Oh, by the way, (laughs) you know, but but he has to say that again to the church in Corinth because they're really struggling with people who are part of the church saying they're Christians, but but it's a facade. And they know it's a facade. And, and they need to be rooting this out. There are problems in the church at Corinth. And that's why Paul struggles with these, uh, these Corinthian uh, Christians. Now again, all through the letter, he keeps reminding them that they are saints. That they're in the kingdom. But he also keeps reminding them of their sin. And how they need to, in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And rely on the power of the resurrected Christ to be able to start overcoming their tendencies, their worldly tendencies, their cultural tendencies, and honestly, in many respects, their, their sin muscle memory. I think, some, I think all of us could identify with that idea, is, it, is it, there are some sins that we've developed that just become muscle memory, and you find yourself doing them, and you don't even, it's like you don't even think about it. Does that make sense? And and those are the ones that you really got to start praying about. And you got to take Paul's counsel in uh, Philippians 4 where he says, whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's excellent, whatever's worthy of praise, whatever's just, think about these things. Place your mind on these things rather than on other things. It's funny how he's talking in the first century, essentially he's talking about how to develop healthy neural pathways. (laughs) Before anybody even understood anything about neurology. And Paul's already teaching about that. Interesting to me. So, that is 1 Corinthians. Next week when we gather, we're going to start 2 Corinthians. And I look forward to that. Hope you do too. We'll just continue the story and we'll explain the history of the letters and the differences in the letters and what's going on around the letters as well. And then we'll get into chapter 1. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and its truth, and I just pray that uh, it's something that we would pine for, that we would desire to, to read your word, um, to be refreshed by it, to be encouraged by it, and to be challenged by it. Help us to be able to do that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. See you Sunday.